0: are listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. Good morning. My name is Lauren. This is Baby Lale. We are reading the teaching text to you this morning. It's Isaiah 11:6 through nine. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den and the, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Thanks be to the Lord. (laughs) This is the word of God. (laughs) Good morning, church. So uh, we are um, going to continue our framework of reconciliation today. Before we do that, uh, just a, a very small announcement. We, what we're going through, we just recognize. I recognize that maybe there will be questions along the way. We are moving at light like speed through a lot of text today. We're going to be moving through a lot of scripture, and there may be questions that rise as we talk about reconciliation uh, and these very important and pressing topics for our day and age. And so, what I wanted to do, because we don't always have the time uh, to maybe answer the questions, is to provide a place for you to ask questions that you may have. And so. Uh, up on the screen, what you see is a QR code. And what you're going to do, if you if you scan that, and it'll be up later that you can scan it to at the end of the service, uh, it's going to take you to a little form. Uh, on there, it's going to be a couple of questions about this kind of thing and if we should do it more often. But the most important part is at the bottom, there's going to be a box. And if you've got questions that arise throughout this series and maybe you have questions already or maybe there's something you didn't understand or even something you want to push back on, uh, I want to invite you to put it into that box and send it. And what's going to happen that week of November 6th that we're not going to meet in person, there's going to be a space uh, to be determined. It will probably be some sort of live stream of sorts you can tune into, or the video will be posted, Or we're just going to, as a pastoral team, answer some of the questions that are rising up, some of the things you'd like to be uh, expounded on more, right? So take advantage of that. If it's something that resonates and seems useful, maybe we'll continue it forward. But I just want to introduce that, and again, it will be up later. Um, so don't feel like you got to grab it right now. You ready? All right, let's get into the Word of the Lord. As I said, we have uh, in this series, this third week of our series, Lions and Lambs, where we are exploring a framework for reconciliation. The definition for reconciliation is on the screen, but what's important that you, to you to know today is that this framework we're going is grounded in a two-fold path of both victimizer and victim, the offender and the offended for our purposes, the lion and the lambs. How do these two groups find reconciliation alongside all things? And also, irrespective of the other's journey, sometimes the offender cannot find uh, healing with the offended, and that's okay. And sometimes the offended uh, has an offender that doesn't recognize their violence. So there has to be a way that the Lord then is still making us whole, and that's why he is reconciling all things primarily to himself, and then from there to each other. And so we are working through that framework. You can see it. We'll lay it out on the screen here. Uh, So last week we entered and we talked about the shared starting point of conviction, which we are defining conviction as the recognition of the brokenness of an act, belief, situation, or relationship in view of God's wholeness. Said another way, when we see the holiness of God, His shalom—that Hebrew word meaning a, a, a singular stone or a wall without blemish—when we see His wholeness and completeness, His perfectness, that becomes the lens by which we see the cracks in places we may find ourselves, in beliefs we may be under, in situations we may be in, relationships that may be abusing us. And so how then um, do we move forward from there? Well, first, for whether you are the victim or the victimizer, it starts with conviction. That is that conviction. But then the road diverges slightly. And so today we will be examining the path of the Lamb coming out of conviction, from this place where I, as a lamb, have seen the Lord and recognized that my nose is correct and something doesn't smell right because it's not right, what then do I do? Next week, Gemma will lead us on the journey of the lion. But before we dive in, let's just go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to be our guide. Holy Spirit, we come, we know that you are present because the whole earth is filled with your glory. But Lord, we need more than your presence. We, we boldly demand your activity among us today. Would you not be silent? We know you are prone to whisper, but we beg for a shout today. So by your holy word, will you open our hearts and will you invite yourself on in and do the work that only you can do leading us forward From a place of brokenness into a place of holiness being reconciled alongside all things in you we pray amen all right friends so the question before us today we are exploring what happens what happens when we are lambs have suffered a hurt and find ourselves finally able to recognize the view of god Things aren't right. What happens? I say what happens as opposed to what do we do because the reality is that once we are convicted about something, you've ever been convicted that something is wrong, you've finally been able to accept that this isn't how things should be, what typically froze from that is autonomic or involuntary. Our emotions start to flow. We don't choose our emotions. Typically, in the face of pain, what we do is we move and to lament. Now, we are defining lament here for our purposes as this. Lament is the holistic, meaning the biological, psychological, and spiritual human response to the pain and trauma we have wrought and received. I wanna give you, uh, turn your attention to a couple of things, biological, psychological, spiritual, our pain expresses itself through our bodies in our minds, and our emotions, and also it expresses itself in our very souls, that which is tethered to God. They all speak to one another, and so pain is not isolated, but it moves throughout us, and this pain is that we experience both by what we have done, but also what has been done to us. We all know lament well, but if we don't, we have some guidance in Scripture, through the Psalms. So when you think about the Psalms, the Psalms are a compendium of a human experience. There's not many things that we go through in life that don't have voicing and words in the Psalms. Psalm six is actually one of the first penitent Psalms or Psalms of Lament. And it encapsulates this full movement. Uh, David is suffering from some undisclosed illness we don't really know. We know that he has some ways attributed to part to sin from his point of view. And he's giving notice, he's he's crying out to God. And I want us, as you just kind of look through this very briefly, look at the places of pain and see that holistic human response to this thing that is ailing him. David says, Lord, don't rebuke me in your anger. Don't discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. His body is weak. His bones are in agony. He says in verse 3, my soul is in deep anguish. It cries out, how long, Lord, how long? When's the last time you said those words, how long, Lord, how long? Again, David goes on, turn to the Lord and deliver me. He, he says later that, that among the dead, no one proclaims your name, but he says, who praises you from the grave? I say this is our his, his mind and his emotions. What he is saying here is, Lord, I am near death. It feels like I'm dying. He goes on, verse six, I am worn out from my groaning all night long. I flood my bed with weeping. His emotions have overcome him. I drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. Then later he he finishes out the psalm with, away from me all you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayers. There's some things I want us to see here. See, the process of lament, it starts involuntary, right? But it becomes invitational. We choose to direct our emotions. Uh, emotions. We have this mantra in our house. Uh, it's okay to feel your feelings. We have a three-year-old. Uh, sometimes I have to say it to each other. It's okay to feel your feelings, but your feelings belong to you. You don't belong to your feelings, Feelings belong to us. Though we, don't, though we don't call them forward, we do have a choice in how we direct them. And so for the lamb, in the view of offense, in this autonomic and voluntary response of lament, their heart crying out, their, their, their bodies crying out, the body does, in fact, keep the score, their soul saying how long, how long, they have a choice. Where will you direct it? See, lament, it's, it's really a gift. It, what lament is, it's, 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 this, it's, this, it's this knock on the door from our neighbor when our house is on fire, when we can't see it, when we're in the middle of the night and we're asleep. It's, it's, this, it's this thing that, that wakes us up to the reality that something needs to be fixed and it cries out to the ones who can heal us, that is unless we shortcut it, which we can often do. Again, I have this, this three-year-old, and uh, as a three-year-old, he's a bit of a maniac. We're working on it. Um, but he has so little disregard for his life. So he is just will just, like, jump off of things and, and, you know, put himself in situations that I'm like, you couldn't see that coming, you know? And so he hurts himself. And in these moments where he hurts himself, immediately his body recognizes their pain, and it sends him into this involuntary response, and he has this moment of what is he going to do with his pain? Now, because he recognizes his mother and I as sources of, of comfort and healing, what often happens is that he runs to us and he throws himself on us. He still believes our kisses somehow can set bones. Uh, <laughs> But this is is coming out of his belief. He directs his emotions, he directs his lament towards those he feels that can help him and heal him. But not every child is like that. Science tells us through attachment theory that some children actually, in the face of their emotions, they don't have a parental structure or a care structure that tells them that it's okay to express their emotions that it's okay to come and deliver their emotions and their pain and find healing. And so for those children, what often happens is they suppress and they hold it in because they don't want to make dad mad again. And that, and that compounds the trauma and the pain in their bodies. And that carries them forward from when they're children into their adults and they still find the inability to express their needs and their hurts, and so they act out and they choose all manner of depravity and brokenness really in an attempt to find healing while being quiet. But there is a different way. We don't have to shortcut our lament We don't have to suppress it or turn to cheap fixes, but we can give it to Jesus. This is pivotal for the lamb as it moves through a path of reconciliation. What will it do with it's pain when it recognizes that it's in it? Over time, we do become convinced of our own self-sufficiency. Whether by nature or by nurture, we believe that we don't need the care of our father. And I think this is why Jesus tells us, Matthew 18, as he sits with his disciples and he takes up a child that's running and he says, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I believe what the Lord is telling that unless you you give up your self-sufficiency and realize that I am a good father who wants to heal you and you come to me, you won't find the healing that you seek. So in verse eight of Psalm six, David takes this posture of a child, I don't want you to miss this, where he says, the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. In David's place of weeping and lament, whatever this illness and this affliction was, he is crying out to the Lord. He is expressing his need for his father and what he finds is the Lord, a father that does not reject him, does not rebuke him, but instead accepts and hears his prayers. What God does for the lamb in lament is that he meets us in his mercy, and that is his nature. Psalm 103, 13 says the father shows compassion to his children so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. That compassion being his movement towards us. It's this guttural, this guttural affection that he carries for us. Isaiah 66, 13, as a mother comforts her child so I will comfort you. Some of us, a father analogy isn't working for us and God says I am also a good mother. Come and I will give you comfort. Matthew 5, 4, Jesus says in his seminal uh, Sermon on the Mount, he starts with, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and save those who are crushed in spirit. This is the very nature and character of God. So for my lambs today, the question becomes, where will you take your pain? Where have you been taking your pain? Patchwork pick-me-ups. The critical care of a mother and good father. Revelations 3 has this picture where God says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, and opens the door. I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. There's this picture, he says, I will come in. He's eating, he's dining. This is this this picture of abiding, which should hearken us back to John 15, where when Jesus was on the earth, he says a similar thing, but he says, if you remain in me, speaking to his disciples, and I in you, if we are dining together... If we, are, if we are nourishing one another, you by your praise and obedience, me by my all-sustaining love and power, then that will bring forth much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. The ways in which you try to heal yourself, they aren't working, right? Amen? This lament is so important for the Lamb because, because we have to see our God. We have to see our Father. So that we can move forward because we do move forward because what that autonomic and voluntary response of lament that then gives us the invitation to take it to God. Well, if we do that, if we don't shortcut the process, where we will find ourselves this is in something we're calling examination, examination. Examination we're defining as the process by which we locate God and ourselves in the progress of our reconciliation and healing. I'll read that one more time. Examination is the process coming out of lament that by which we locate God and ourselves in the progress of our reconciliation and healing. The thing about examination, it reveals God's character, his truth, and then direction. It takes us forward. Maybe you're familiar with the story of Job. Job is kind of like the ultimate lamb of the scripture, right? Uh, Job is just minding his own business, loving the Lord, you know, just being a good dude. Uh, up in heaven, there's an accuser, Satan, the scriptures say, that comes in and he has, uh, he has this, this bone to pick with God about Job. And he says, yeah, I know you think Job is all that and that he loves you, but give him a little hard, hardship and he'll break. He'll turn from you. That's where his heart is. It's all just a show because, you know, as the poet Mike Tyson says, uh, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> so God says, okay, well, have at it. Go test Job. And so he goes, he goes into Job's life and he wreaks havoc. He takes away his wealth. He takes away his children. He takes away his health. He's covered in boils. He has nothing. He has a wife that's like, just go and die, please. He's got three friends that are convinced that it's all his fault. And Job is like, I promise I didn't do anything. And no one believes him. In some ways it's, it's, you have to give a little grace to Job and his friends because they are operating on an assumption that I think is very common. And the assumption is this, they are operating on the assumption that in a just world, only bad people should experience suffering. As such, if God was just, then either Job is wicked on the down low or God isn't as just as they presume. So it leads them to this place of examination where Job in chapter 10, he he cries out to God and he's trying to locate God. He's He's saying, why did you even bring me out of the womb? Like, what kind of God are you? If you knew this was waiting for me and you're good, why would you do this? Then he locates himself a little later on. He says, I'm headed to the, the land of the deepest night of utter darkness and disorder, where even the light is like darkness. Have you felt that? We've all been lambs at once in our life. Have you seen the signposts of that place of desolation or even the light looks like darkness? That's where Job sees himself. And he's crying out to God, how could this be? And there's this thing that happens after Job and his friends, uh, in my culture we would say pop off at the mouth. Um, God comes to them, <clears throat> he comes to Job, And he sets him straight. And what he does is he goes to Job and he starts questioning him about the foundations of the earth. He starts telling Job about the the feeding patterns of lions and how he knows and tells the sun when to rise, how he put the stars in place and put them on their course. Basically, he tells Job that his worldview is too limited to have a rightful opinion on whether God is just or not based on his circumstances. And then to Job's ultimate question, that I think we're all maybe coming in today with, why then do lambs suffer? Well, the Lord doesn't really give a concrete answer. He doesn't say anything that I can put on a screen. Much of Job is Hebrew poetry. But near the end of God's uh, quote unquote defense of himself, he gives us these two poems of these two ancient beasts, the Bohemoth and the leviathan. And he talks about throughout scripture, these two animals represent disorder and evil and, and brokenness. And God talks about describing them, but he describes these broken things, but he describes their beauty and how he created them and how they're. Their splendor displays his glory. And what we can derive from this poetry, I love how Tim Mackey puts it in the Bible Project, says we live in an amazing world that is not currently designed to prevent suffering. That's essentially what God says. To which I would add, but God asked for his trust, not unearned, but based on his displayed character, that all is being reconciled. This current world, no one gets out clean. But he's working on it. Everything will be made clean. There's an interesting note in that passage I showed earlier that I think actually leads us a little bit forward in this. So as, as, as Job is describing this place of darkness, that word there, koshek the Hebrew word for darkness, the first time it appears, it actually appears in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 verse 2 reminds us that, 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 that uh, the, the earth was formless and empty, and the kashek, the darkness, was over the surface of the deep, but the Spirit, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters." this place that Job is identifying, the spirit of God is hovering over the waters. And we know the Genesis goes on that, that, that the God's creative nature, his hovering power over this, him in the middle of this darkness is about to bring about life. He is about to take this disorder and to bring about order. He is taking this chaos and bringing about the Tov Mayod. He is taking this nothingness and bringing the fullness of life. He is creating the conditions for not only life to exist, but for life to thrive. Because that's what he's he doing. He does in the place of darkness and so if we feel like we are in this place where even the light feels like darkness then maybe we'd be comforted by the understanding that the spirit of god like in the beginning is still hovering over that place seeking to bring it forward into order Where I think we can go from this, because this reminds me of Romans 1.20, which says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his internal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. And so we know that God creates creation in Genesis 1. By this, we see his beauty. We understand who he is. And So if God is doing that, then maybe God is doing that in suffering. Maybe God is revealing his glory and his nature in and through our suffering because now he is long, he is showing you who he is, showing you that he is long suffering by the way he's walking you through the pain of your childhood, that it's taken years to earn and years to escape. He's showing you that he's victorious by failing the plans of that person that had for harm for you. He's showing you he's empowering as he holds you up longer than you ever thought possible under the trial that you've went through. Maybe God allows lambs to go through suffering because by it he is revealing himself to them so that they know him more fully and he is revealing themselves is showing that with him what they're capable of. But this examination from lament brings us to two realities. Before the lions in our lives, before the situations, beliefs, the acts, the things that are killing us, it means that the Lord is either calling us to stay or to go and he will call us to do one or the other. Last week, I left us off on the story of Hagar. Just to remind you, Hagar was this this slave woman of Abram, uh, God's chosen man who made this promise to make a whole whole nation out of, and he said that that Abraham and his wife Sarah would have a child, but they were impatient, and so Sarah wants to get this ball rolling. She sends in her slave, Hagar. Uh, Abram takes her. And then she is impregnated, and then Sarah, in her jealousy, uh, mistreats her to the point that Hagar has no choice but to leave, and she flees out into the desert where the Lord meets her. He says to her daughter, where are you going? Where are you coming from? Just his very recognition of her, she says that truly this is the God who sees me, but that's not it. The Lord also tells her that she will bear the son that is in her body, and that she has to go back. To these abusive people, and frankly, I've always wrestled with that. Particularly as a son of a woman of color, a brother of a woman of color, who often in this society bear the brunt of so much abuse, and often time and again are called to stay and wait. How do I reconcile this? Well, what changed for me is when I step back and I realize that maybe the story isn't about Hagar, but it's about God. And here's what I mean by that if it's about just Hagar, then it doesn't make any sense that God sends her back into an abusive situation. But if it's about God setting things right for Hagar and all of creation, well, then what we see is that God then takes this woman who should be cast out, who's not a part of his plan. She's a slave. God made a promise to a person that he was going to give him a child that would be the benefit of all nations through his wife. They went and they took the shortcut. They abused Hagar. She was not a part of God's plan, and God had every right to say, well, I wasn't going to do that thing, so I'll send you out like they did into the desert to die, but he doesn't do that. He changes his plan. He folds them back in, and so he sends her back. But what he's sending her back to is because he has a way of doing things. One of those things that he's doing is he's using the process of circumcision to bring about his blessing into the world. He needs people to see that there is something in their bodies that has to be cut off so that they can then move into the fullness of God. And so when he sends Hagar back, she has Ishmael, and at 13, he got the circumcision that he wouldn't have had in the desert. And the bastard becomes a prince. He is folded into the past. God changes his plans and doesn't throw away what some would call a mistake, a burden, an inconvenience. No, he takes her and he says, I'm gonna make your son a father of many nations and he will be rich. I've got you. You've gotta go back because I've got a process, but I'm gonna meet you in that process. So he goes back. Ishmael gets, gets, gets his inheritance from his father at 13. The next year, his little brother Isaac is born and they're kicked out again into the desert. And this is why I say what the Lord is doing because the second time they're kicked out and they're now in this desert alone and they're waiting to die and Hagar literally puts her son to the side because she doesn't, she can't bear to see him die. The Lord comes and he sees her again in the same place he found her the first time but he doesn't send her back this time because she's gotten the promise. He's gotten what he needs and so now he says, I'm gonna give you a well and you're gonna stay here and thrive. And so Hagar and Ishmael grow and they thrive. And Ishmael becomes the father of many nations. Rich and plentiful are his descendants. And the Lord is still doing his thing because he brings about healing through Abraham just like he promised Jesus comes. But by Jesus, Ishmael still gets to come back into the fullness of the promise. So his reconciliation is happening. But if you look just at the one moment, you can't see it because Our perspective is too small. And maybe the story isn't about us, but it's being told through us. So, As lambs, when in view of God and examination, he calls us to stay. Well, he has restored to us what was lost, namely our agency and our power. What happens to the lamb and the offense is they're, they're stripped of their peace and their agency. I didn't ask you to come and harm me. But when God calls them to stay, but he's calling them to stay because he's going to give them the power to stay. And so now they're making the choice to stay. That's a very different situation. I can stand in this affliction because God has called me to it versus I'm staying in this confliction because I can't leave or I won't leave. My agency, my power has been returned to me. And we see this throughout scripture. Look at Daniel, thrown into a lion's den, unjust, but he goes into the den and he is saved. Look at Joseph, thrown into a pit and becomes the second in command. And he stays in this broken system because the Lord has a plan. Look at Paul and Silas in a prison and they do not leave when the doors open because they choose to stay and by them, people are given life. Look at Jesus who goes to a cross, an innocent man. And he looks at Pilate and says, you've got no power over me. I am choosing to stand under your unjust ruling because God's got a plan and he's given me the power to endure it. This this is how we get to verse eight in our teaching text. The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. For the lambs, we are returned to our power of agency and our courage, our ability to stand before the things that are given us. Because the future forward, those children are putting their hands over the nest where they're doing so in view of parents who knew a time when it wasn't wise to do so. Their parents have this renewed courage. These infants carry out that courage. They can interact with what should harm them because they know that God's got them. We're wrapping up. Let's be honest though. If you've ever been in a lamb situation, (laughs) staying is almost kind of easy. It's actually leaving that's oftentimes more hard. Staying, even if I'm staying without agency, well, the devil, the devil you know. when we move into this examination when we see the Lord he gives us a picture of the plan sometimes it's to stay other times it's to go it is to go there's a whole book of the Bible about it it's called Exodus leaving (laughs) get out the original. <laughs> I'm going to move through the story, but if you don't know it, essentially where there was Ishmael, there was Isaac. This Isaac leads to these, these 12 sons uh, that have many kids. They're in Egypt, and then they become slaves, and they are slaves. They are lambs under this oppressive system, and they toil there. But then the Lord says, he sends his, his servant Moses, and he says, It's time to go. You will not stay under this broken rule anymore. But here's the thing about leaving that has to be true, and that is true. It requires some things. And this is the reality. This is why oftentimes we stay unhealthily when God hasn't called us to stay, because we feel like there's some requirements, and we don't know if we'll meet them, but there are, and we should name them, and and this is what I mean. If we're going to leave as lambs this broken system that God is calling to, then what it requires, one, from the Lord, it requires his power, his provision, and a plan. If if I'm going to get out of here, I'm going to need your power to get out of here, and he provides it. For the Israelites, this takes the form of 10 plagues, I will break the backs of these people that oppress you, so I will open the door and you get out. So he sends 10 plagues that wreaks havoc on the, on, the, on the Egyptian people to the point where they're like, hey, you got to get out and go. And this provides God's provision because you say, okay, i got to leave the situation, but I've been a slave. What do I got? How do I make it? So if I'm going to leave, not only do you have to make a way, but you gotta, you got to make a way, you got to sustain me. For the Israelites, it looked like provision, Looks looked like when he, got, he made the Egyptians so fearful that they were like, y'all have to leave and take all of our stuff. <laughs> here is our gold, here is our wealth, here is our cattle, please get out, hurry. God provides for his people as they exit. Okay, you got me out and you've, you've sustained me, but I need a plan. What are we doing here? Well, he's got that too. Actually, he's got it before he even moves. This is evident in the uh, Israelite story with the Egyptians in, in, in chapter six, uh, when God shows up to Moses, who is going to lead the people out. He gives them the whole plan. You're going to go and you're going to say to Pharaoh, release my people, and you're going to take them out. And I'm going to take you to a land. By which you'll benefit. Lord knew the whole story. This goes back to Isaiah 65, 24, where God says, Before they even before they even call, I will answer. Before they even call, I will answer. I've got a plan. That's what it requires from the Lord, but what does it require from us? Well, three things. I think it requires readiness, trust, and resolution. One, readiness. In this place of conviction, we move to lament, and then we make the decision to take that lament to God who shows us where he's moving in this situation. He gives us the plan. He says it's time to go. Well, then we have to be ready when he says, start moving. Well, the Israelites has happened. We see this in Exodus 12, where he installs Passover. And he says, hey, I'm going to bring over the angel of death. I'm going to take all the firstborn. Here's what you got to do as a symbol. I want you to get these bitter herbs, these meat. I want you to sit and I want you to eat this this lamb. I want you to eat this meal. But I want you to do it with your shoes on and your staff in your hand, ready to go. Because I got a plan. But when I say move, you got to go. We gotta be ready, seeking the Lord. Where are you? Tell me when to move. But it's not enough to be ready if we don't trust. Because this is, this is, this is flowing easily when we're talking about it, but when you're in it, you end up near a red sea. You end up backed into maybe a literal corner. How do I actually do this? And in those places, we'll have to trust. So as they're bordered against the red sea and the enemy is coming to take them back into slavery, God says, I gotta part some water. I will part some water, and you'll walk over dry land. Okay, never seen that before. But they trust him, and God proves himself faithful. He takes them across the sea into dry land and uses that sea to swallow up their enemy. So we've got our readiness, we've got our trust, but then lastly, we have to have our resolution. This is the place where we say, Okay, God, I'm going to keep going on this path because sometimes it's a long journey. For the Israelites, it's 40 years before they make it to that land. Part of that is their own doing. Nevertheless, even as they come out of this Red Sea and out of this bondage, they start grumbling. That's why they end up 40 years in the desert because they weren't resolute. But they started that way right after they they move out of the Red Sea. There's this, uh, Exodus 15, there's this song of Moses where he's singing, he says, the Lord is, much like the one we sing, that the Lord is our battle, the, long, the Lord is our defender, and him we will trust. If they had kept that resolution, they probably wouldn't have had wandered as long as they did in the desert. Sometimes the Lord calls us to leave. This is how verse nine of our teaching texts come to pass, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Sometimes we are leaving this situation and taking with us our agency and our power in the Lord. We take that knowledge of him, founded to him, and we take it throughout the world, wherever he's leading us. Now, as we move to response, again, I ask the question for us today, Where to whom will you take your pain? You're right. The situation isn't good and you didn't deserve it. You don't earn it. It is beneath your status as an image bearer of God. Your body is confessing that. Your mind and your heart is confessing that. So what do you do? Will you endure through cheap cheap fixes, cheap graces? Or would you dare to give it to the one who's since ready to save you by his very character and nature? Would you allow him to meet you, to show you where he's working and whether he's calling you to stay because he's working some things out or whether he's calling you to leave because it's time to go, you trust that he has a plan and a view that is higher than your ways. The story is about him, but it's being told through you. The story is about his goodness, but it's expressed by his goodness towards you. Would you stand with me today? We're just gonna move into a time of response. What well, I just wanna ask you if you, if you're, if you're in that lamb place today and maybe it's, this is kinda of thick and you just, the good thing about you don't have to go alone. It's the one thing we didn't really get to dive into today, but this isn't some isolated process. God provides his people to walk with us through it. That's how this works. And so for today, we've got people who would love to just pray with you, to listen and pray alongside you, that you'd be able to see the Lord clearly in your lament. There'll be some up here, standing up here that you can pray with. They'll be kind of also moving throughout the crowd. They have lanyards on. You can come to these rugs, they would love to meet you there. You can come to them directly, but we want to invite you just to respond to the Lord, to get a view of Him. Ben's going to lead us here in worship in a second when I pray. <clears throat> and I'm also going to invite you to the table. This is the power. We have a God who was tempted in every way as we were, a man well acquainted with grief, a man of sorrow, a lamb. He provided the path of reconciliation through his blood and threw his body broken. And he gave us this meal to remind us to be a constant reminder that he knows what it is to be up under and that he has made a way. And so here's what's gonna happen. We're gonna have our elders and our hospitality team come forward. This side is gluten-free. If you need it, just come to this station. If you're on the sides, you'll just come back here and receive your communion. If you're in the middle, you'll come to one of these two stations. You just filter out the sides and come forward and receive. The night Jesus was betrayed, he took this bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Take this often in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup and said, this is my blood. Shed for you, blood of the new covenant. Whenever you eat and drink, again, be reminded that this is for you. So as we move into response, if you need to pray, there will be people here to pray for you. If you identify with Jesus, come and receive his meal that reminds you that the power to stay, the power to leave, been brought here at his table and then we'll all just worship because he inhabits the praises of his people we want to invite his presence more fully among us but lord as we receive these elements and as we give you our response would you do your holy work in us